0: So, today I want to talk about chapter four of the book. And that's the chapter that deals with uh, thought as a computation. So, we were just going over the test, so maybe I'll do a half hour. And then we'll have our break, and then we'll talk about it some more. Okay? So, um, and that's, I guess, as humans, that's the. the The issue that we tend to be the most keenly interested in is whether or not the human mind is a computation or what the mind is doing. And uh, so one thing I start with in the book is uh, we can get this sort of black box picture picture of the mind to begin with that we have uh, sensors That feed things into the mind. And then we have what are called effectors that give the outputs. And sensors, you know, like your eye, ear, taste, touch, the five senses. And the effectors, muscles, also uh, your your glands. that produce hormones, things like adrenaline. Like if you think about something that you're anxious about, your adrenaline pumps up. And that's not really a muscle so much as a gland. And uh, it's also, though I didn't put that in the, in the book, it's also the case that sometimes the effector in some sense feeds back into the mind. That is, you have an idea it goes back into the mind. But for now, suppose we ignore that part. And we're just looking at we have some some entity. It gets things from the outside world, and it does things. Okay? You might also, speech would be another example of an effector that you do, motion. That's really a muscle thing, speech. So then the question is, uh, what's inside here in this part that we call the mind? Now, I might mention in passing, we usually think of the human mind is residing in the brain. Aww. But that's sort of maybe a modern prejudice. It's always, have you ever been to the Rosicrucian Egyptian Museum? It's over uh, one of San Jose's stellar attractions. And they have this jar there with these, this case with these jars. And the Egyptians, when somebody died, they would they'd put their intestines in this one jar and they'd put their. Stomach in another jar, and they'd put their liver in another jar. And the brain, they wouldn't bother saving the brain. They'd just, let's just clean this junk out of this this person's skull. Okay. And the heart they'd leave in the body because they figured the heart is a muscle, so we'll leave that. So they'd mummify all the muscles and the heart, and the organs they'd save in these jars, and the brain they'd say, oh, that's just some snot. Let's just throw that junk away. <laughs> so it's, uh, And now we've sort of evolved to the kind of opposite viewpoint. That's this sort of science fiction image that you often see of the brain in the jar. You see that on Futurama or The Simpsons, there always be this brain in a jar. And uh, you can even pay, there's this company called Alcor, uh, if you want to, you can pay them to freeze your brain after you die. You can either have them freeze your whole body But it's less expensive to just freeze your brain, so some people go for that. Of course, you wonder. I mean, suppose we had like thousands of people's frozen brains. I mean, why would anybody bother starting them up again? I mean, maybe if you had Einstein, you know, or Bono, you know, or Dick Cheney, you'd say, well, let's let's thaw that guy out so we can talk to him, you know. But the average person, they're not going to thaw you out. But be that as it may, Uh, but a lot of the computation in our body, the the reason I'm making this point is a lot of it is done really by not just by my brain. There's things that my organs are doing. My heart is doing uh, class four computation. I mentioned earlier the heartbeat isn't really truly periodic, and uh, my muscles. There's all sorts of computations going on in my body. But um, And it's good to be aware of that and not get too hung up on your brain. But even so, mainly in this chapter, I keep talking about the brain, because that's what we, we think about the most. Now, when we want to start modeling how the sensors do things to the effectors, there's simple sorts of things you can do. Like the Lego toy company, they sell... Um, they sell a, a robotics kit called Mindstorms, and you can make a little car in there, and the little car will uh, follow. If you you can like put a piece of tape on the floor, and the car will follow the tape, assuming that the floor and the tape are a different color. Okay, so you can give the way it works is uh, you give the thing two little basically eyes, light sensors that are kind of looking down, and uh, Suppose it's a little bit off the, the line here, and if one eye is over the line and the other is not over the line. Suppose that the line is white, and suppose that the floor is black. Okay, then you can tell this little guy. Okay, if what you're seeing in both eyes is the same, that's cool. You're straddling the line. Just go straight. But then, if suddenly uh, one of your one of your eyes starts getting brighter, then uh, you want to turn to the left to get back over the line. So, you'd want to actually rev up this wheel. So, we'd have a line kind of running like that. So, we'd have a sort of crossed a cross here in, in the neural system. The left eye would go to the right wheel, the right eye would go to the left wheel. And you could basically, without really having any logic in it, you could just say, have a little motor on each wheel and have the intensity of how fast that motor's turning be keyed to. Uh, how much light is coming into this sensor. And that would be enough to make the thing straddle a line, assuming you have the right kind of white on black line. And um, so things like this are what we sometimes call reflexes. And we have a lot of those in our body and brain. You know, I mean, if if something comes at your face, you blink, you don't have to analyze it. It's like a real fast. Sometimes people talking about hardwired wired reflexes. Uh, somebody hits your knee, your leg kicks. Uh, there's a lot of those things built into us. And these are things we don't have to learn, we're just, they're pre-wired. One, uh, often people talk about trying to make robots that, that behave like people, and the thing that we always need to keep in mind, and you say, well, couldn't I just teach a robot? I can teach a child. But probably 90, 98% of the, well, I'm not sure what the percentage would be. I'm not even sure how to measure it. But I would say a very large percentage of things that you can do as a, as a computing organism are things that you're born with. I mean, all that reflex stuff, that's, that's already there, that's in place. And lots more is in place, too. The, the brain's been evolving. Our species, well, I mean, it's been like 500 years. 500 million years since we were paramecia. So we've had, had quite, a, quite a bit of time. Anyway, reflexes. Then we could say, well, going a step above reflexes. In other words, a reflex is just you have this direct sort of wire going from a sensor to an effector. We can also put in things that are a little more like logic circuits. And I have a little picture in the book uh, about something, a walking machine. and uh, I don't remember exactly how the picture worked. Uh, Let's see, does somebody have a book I can look at for a second? Yeah, let me see yours, John. Uh, thanks, Green. If we look at figure, um, so the toy car I was just talking about, that's figure 80. And if we look at figure 83, you can get a little something a little more complicated than a reflex. We can have a, a sensor on each knee that tells you, is that knee straight or not? Okay. And what you want to do, essentially, is alternate having the knees be uh, straight and bent. So I drew a little picture of a circuit here, which uh, looks like this. And uh, let's see looks like in figure 83 there. And uh, this is, if you take like a real low-level computer science course, you'll usually have to learn about these things. These, this picture I've drawn here, this is what they call a logic gate. And this, I think, is a, is that an AND gate or a, an OR gate? Let's see. Yeah, that, that's an AND gate. So yeah, what we've got in this little circle means not. So this is basically saying, if your left knee is not bent and your right knee is bent, then you should straighten the leg. Is that right? No. If yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. So if your left knee is bent and your right knee is not bent, then oh, this is my right leg. Let's suppose we're standing behind him so we don't have to flip everything. So my left, if my left knee, and let's say this measures straight or not. So if my left knee and flexing this muscle, when you flex that muscle, I guess that, that bends your knee when you, you flex your thigh muscle. So whatever, okay, you can trace it out, okay? So if when I'm walking, if, if this knee is bent and this one isn't, then I want to straighten this leg and bend the other one. So I want to alternate doing that. And so we, get, we set this in motion, and we'll see this uh, this thing start walking around. There was, while I was at MIT this weekend, I went to the robotics lab. There's this guy called Rodney Smith. He's a famous uh, robotics guy. He coined it. He, he, he built an ant a few years ago. It's called Attila the Ant, and it was on the Scientific American. And Actually, now Brooks, he's the, the head of this division there. They have this beautiful new building called CSAIL, Computer Science Artificial Intelligence Lab. Really neat looking building designed by Frank Gehry. It's all curvy. And they were making, uh, what they keep working on is trying to make robots that will. are one of the things. There's different camps. Some people are interested in the AI as software. Others are interested in the robotics, AI as machines that we're making, and they're sort of going back and forth. And one thing that that people, they're always working on trying to make things that are better at walking around. Sony, a couple years ago, started making people that could walk around a little bit. And there's a lot more. They're showing me this one robot that had a hand it had two eyes and it could it could sort of notice if something was moving and it would point the eyes towards whatever was moving. So it had this very alert look to it. And then there's actually sort of you know, how like the image of a deadhead, you know, at a concert and they're tripping and they're just looking at their hand, you know. And this is sort of what that robot would do when nobody was bothering it. It would like to just be looking at its hands and moving its hand around and learning learning to watch its hands. Like that was that's something eye hand coordination. That's something that we have, but that I guess it's high level enough that if you're a stone deadhead, it can seem like pretty exciting that you can do that. Okay, but this robot's name was uh, what was his name? Oh, Domo. And it was really nice to t- touch Domo's hand because there are all these springs and muscles. So the fingers it didn't feel like mean like a robot usually does. The fingers were real kind of gentle to touch and. You could push on them, and they pushed push back a little bit. It felt very live. And uh, it was cool. But it's always also, it's always when you go to a place like, like this. Where, I mean, these are the guys. there are pretty much at the forefront of making robots. And they're never that far along. <laughs> it's just, you think, well, and you'll read an article about it, and it but it's, it's really still they're just things that are being done by grad students for their thesis projects. I mean, people pretty much like you all that are just, you know, putting these things together. And it's not like it's not like it's going to happen. It's not like in, a, in six weeks we're going to be, you know, bumped out of our jobs by these guys. Domo doesn't have legs yet. Anyway, it's just the top of his body's there, just sitting there looking at his hands. But, uh, <laughs> I'm <laughs> not gonna take your job tomorrow. Okay, uh, now the when we the thing is once we get to this idea of having a logic circuit inside a body, then that's where we sort of say, Well let's let's push this. What if we put after all, if you draw like what's on a computer chip, it's really just a whole lot of these little wires and AND, and gates and OR gates. And we could say well, maybe that's that's all that's going on. So then we say, well, where do we have things like that in our body? And of course, the place where we look is at the neurons. And the neurons, they have this quality that they have uh, they have inputs, okay, and then they have uh, they have outputs, okay. So generally, a neuron it's a cell, and there's cells that kind of reach out and have these endings that are kind of sensitive. And then, uh, generally speaking, there will be some of these protrusions from the neuron that will act as the inputs. And then there'll be one particular protrusion from the cell that acts as the output. And this output is often called the axon, the fiber of it. And these places where, and this would be the axon of some other cell, and where this thing almost touches this thing, this is called a synapse. Okay, it's where you have uh, the ending of one cell's protrusion is almost touching the other cell. And the idea is that a neuron can fire, it can send an electrical signal out along its axon. And sometimes it's it's sort of also a little bit like a chemical signal. It's it's not exactly it's just it's not like it's a copper wire. It's sort of like a bio bioelectric signal that goes out there. And then there's a stimulation that jumps across the synapse. And this stimulation, to some extent, it's electrical, but it also has to do with this thing simply secreting some chemical that then goes across and sticks to the, the synapse. And it's all Incredibly gnarly and complex. The more you ever read about the the physiology of the brain, it's it's mind-boggling. But what we want to do, if we then look at the brain, the brain has this uh, this sheet on top. They call the neocortex. Okay, and the neocortex has a couple of layers. It turns out what's in the neocortex. This is what they call the middle layer, uh, the upper layer, and the deep layer. Okay, so you've got the upper layer on top. You've got the middle layer and the deep layer. So that's the sort of stuff that's on top of the outer part of your brain, You know, that sort of white part that's all convoluted. And the idea is the sensors feed, generally speaking, the sensory inputs mostly go into the middle layer. And then these feed something into the upper layer. And then the upper layer feeds back into itself. This is where the computation takes place. It circles around, and then eventually the upper layer sends signals out to the deep layer, and then the deep layer goes and tells the muscles, the glands, your speech organs to do things. Okay. So there's this sort of multiple-layered process that's taking place in your brain, and again, there's a lot of neurons. There's what's the number? Uh, it's Is it a trillion? No, I think a trillion is too high. A hundred billion. So, not quite a trillion. There's about a hundred billion neurons in your brain, a lot of them. And another reason that the brain is complex is that the neurons, they're not that simple. They're actually, you know, they have really a lot of internal state. There's all sorts of chemicals in there. The structure is very complex. So, kind of a huge amount of data there. But you know we're monkeys. We like to fiddle with things. So we say, oh, we'll make one. Okay, we'll figure it out. So what we do, and I'll just tell you this. You are starting to look a little fatigued. So I'll just tell you one more thing, and then we'll take our break. okay? Uh, what we do in computer science uh, and in analyzing the brain is we have something that we also call a neuron, but really it's a neuron in quotes. Okay, and this is your computer science neuron, and, and this is like a very simple device. We say uh, we give it some input lines, and uh, maybe uh, input one, input two, input three. Now each input we put a little weight on that input, so weight one, weight two, weight three. Now these weights normally we take uh, we like to take the weights to be real numbers between 1 and minus 1. We can think of these signals, also, as being, generally speaking, uh, being between 0. Generally, we think of the signals as being positive. So the signals is going to be positive between uh, 0 and 1. And then uh, what we have in here is some value t that's called the threshold value. And then we have a single output line. And the rule that these things work by is we sum up your inputs. You take my weight 1 times input 1 plus weight 2 times input 2 plus weight 2 times input 3, and I get a sum. Okay? And then my output, uh, one way to do the output is just to say if my sum is greater than equal then my output is one, and if my sum is less than the threshold, then my output, I think I write OU, so this doesn't look like zero, then my output is zero. So that's the simplest kind of computer science neuron, Iraq. And uh, so this is like a lot simpler than the biological neuron, but the hope is, the dream is, that maybe we could hook together a whole lot of these things in a network and it would act like a brain. Okay. So let's take a break now and uh, we'll start off again in about 15 minutes. Okay, let's get back to the the lecture on chapter four of the good book. And uh, we're talking about representing the brain's doings as a computation. And I was talking about this idea that people noticed that the physical human brain, or the animal brains, they all are made up of these neurons. And the neurons seem to have the quality that they have inputs and usually one output. And so then uh, computer scientists and cognitive scientists, they idealized and said, well, why don't we just model this by a simple little uh, computer-like object that has uh, some finite number of input lines and a single output line. And what we'll do for the update rule for this thing, suppose that we'll imagine a big array of these Neurons connected each other, and let's suppose that we'll update them in parallel. And in each cycle, what we'll do for each of these guys, we will sum up the, the input values and let the neuron do a little computation on that and then give an output value. And then this output value will then be passed on in the next update to the other neurons. Now, um, <coughs> The rule that's the simplest rule that you can use is simply have each input line have a numerical weight on it. So you take a weighted sum of these inputs. It's like you say, well, this input matters a lot to me. I'll weight this point 0.1. This one is kind of unreliable. I'll give this a very small weight, like 0.1. And this guy, whatever he says is usually the opposite of what's true, so maybe I'll give him a weight of minus 0.5 to this one. Okay, so you might do something like that. And then sum those up. And then you get the sum, and then you compute the output on the basis of the sum. As I said, sometimes you can say, let's just have a single threshold number. If the sum is bigger than the threshold, the neuron fires. It sends out a 1. Otherwise, it sends out a 0. Often, you will see a slightly more complicated output rule. And they'll have what's known as a sigmoid curve. And they'll say, um, if the... Suppose the threshold value is t, let's we'll say this line is 1. will say if, if my value is a lot less, if the sum is a lot less than the threshold, I'll give a very low value. But what I can do, I can kind of ramp up and have this sort of, they call this a sigmoid curve because it's a little bit like an s. And as the value, the sum gets closer to t, I'll ramp up my output value. And this actually, a lot of times this gives better results uh, Simply because if you let the, the output be a number between zero and one, then uh, you're in some sense passing on a little bit of information, a little bit more information than if you're just passing on a zero or a one. It's like you noticed earlier in the course, when we do our continuous valued cellular automata, you can get kind of smoother, richer patterns with a limited number of cells. And it's easier to get rich behavior with these artificial neurons. If we allow continuous valued outputs. But uh, it's not a huge difference. Now, when we want to design, now when we hook these things together uh, in computer science, we call what we have a neural net. And I'll say a little bit about how we hook the neural nets together and how we get them to do things. Um, There's sort of a saying among computer scientists that. Neural nets are the second best solution for any problem in artificial intelligence. And there's two aspects to that. One is that they're so plastic, so malleable, you can actually do pretty much anything you want to with a neural net. Uh, The the second best aspect has to do with um, the fact that the neural net usually does not involve any kind of aha, any kind of clever representation. It's sort of just pecks the problem to death. It just kind of beats the problem to death. So it's usually, uh, if you get a really elegant solution to an AI problem, then you would prefer that to a neural net solution. But the reality is that a lot of times we can't find an elegant solution. Uh, Things like speech recognition, neural nets are being used a lot these days. Like when you talk to a, like a voice, a voice bot on the phone, and you're telling it your name or something, it it wants. I mean, you're saying something, and somehow it's turning that into a spelling. It's turning that into a spelling of your name, so it can type it out. And it's using a, it's using a voice recognition system that's based on neural nets. And uh, okay, so how do neural nets work? Well. Again, we kind of look back to the brain. I mentioned earlier there's different sort of layers in the cortex. And uh, the sensory inputs come into some neurons. and Then they go to some other neurons. And then they go to still another layer of neurons. And then that goes to the muscles. The idea is in neural nets, we often use layers as well. Now, I'll describe one particular neural net because when I used to teach the AI course, Uh, over in the CS department. This is an example I found. It was created by this good book we used. It was called Machine Learning. And uh, the author had made up this really nice experiment you could do. He had this big uh, file of photographs of people. They're in this really simple format. Um, And each, each photograph was, oh, I think it was maybe well, let's see. I'll look at the number that I've got here. Each was 30 by 32 pixels in size, Okay, so 30 by 32 pixels in size. And uh, each pixel had a grayscale value that was basically just a byte. It was a number from 0 to 255, Okay, from 0 being black, 255 being white. And what he had done, he'd taken, he'd taken pictures of all the students in his class. And not just one picture, he'd taken pictures of them looking to the left, looking to the right, looking straight, looking up. And then doing all of those three things, four things, wearing sunglasses. And I think maybe he'd also done pictures of them smiling and not smiling. So there's kind of this, this nice big bunch of pictures. But each of these inputs was, uh, well, 30 times 32 is what? 900 and uh, 960 inputs. The idea is, he said, well, let's make a neural net. And uh, again, this is an experiment I used to do with that class. We would do that, too. We said, let's uh, imagine having all these inputs so that we have an input from each pixel going to this neuron. And then we'd have an input from each pixel going to the second neuron, an input from each pixel. You might think you'd need a lot of neurons to do something hard, but it turned out three were enough. Okay. So these were the sort of uh, you can think of this as the the input layer. So the input layer basically for each pixel I get a number between you could think of as a number between zero and one, or a byte from zero to two fifty-five an intensity. And then Each of these pixels runs into each of these. We'll we'll just use three neurons. Maybe you would want to use four, maybe five, but it turns out three are enough for this problem. And there's a little weight on each of these things. So there's actually this is the weight for the first neuron and the first pixel, up to the weight for the first neuron and the 960th pixel. So you'd actually have 960 weights here, and then another 960 weights here, another 960 weights here. And then uh, we would have the uh, system try to decide whether the person you were looking at was smiling or frowning, okay? And so what we did is we took the outputs from each of these. And sometimes they call this layer the hidden layer, your brain is sort of the hidden layer. You've got the input layer, you can see that, and that's your eyes and your, your fingers. There's the hidden layer, that's what's happening inside. And then there's the output layer uh, where you're having uh, the outputs that you can see. So we had uh, each of these guys, each of these sort of hidden neurons was then giving feeding into the output neurons. So then we had uh, nine more weights here. So this would be the, the output weight one. Or the output 1-1, one, one, maybe the output 1-2, the output 1-3, output 2-1, output 2-2, two, two. output 2-3, two, and so on. So we'd give one of these pictures in, basically as a file, feed all those numbers into these three neurons. Then they would compute their output value by summing up the values of all these things, multiplied by the weights. They would have a threshold value, they would each would have a threshold value they'd use. They'd compare it to the threshold value. And then I think we use the, the sigmoid output. Okay. So then it would give an output, some number would be coming out here between 0 and 1. That would go to each of these things. And then you'd say, well, look at the value. And I'd say, if this is greater than 0.9, we'll say that it's smiling. If this is greater than or equal to 0.9, we'll say that it's frowning. Okay. And uh, it turns out to be too much to expect it to converge on one. It turns out it's hard to get the perfect one. But you say if, if the value is quite high, like 0.9, then we'd say that it's neither. And you say, well, what if it says it's smiling and frowning? Well, then that means you're, you're not done yet. Your system isn't working yet. Your weights aren't right. And so the goal is we had like maybe 100 faces. And the idea was to teach this thing so that given the faces, it would always correctly say whether it was frowning or smiling. So the thing is, we've got like 900, 900. We've got something like on the order of 3,000 weights to pick. So we've got the sort of 3,000 real numbers we want to throw in here. It's something like a 1,000 weights, 1,000, 1,000. How do we figure those out? Well, we're not going to like start writing down numbers and seeing, thinking about it. The whole thing with neural nets is you don't want to think, you don't want to analyze, you don't want to do the aha. You just want to crunch it out. And so what they have is this technique that they've developed, computer scientists, and back propagation, and they speak of training a neural net. And so, what I would have, I'd have like a sort of what we call a training sample of maybe a hundred pictures. And uh, I'd feed the pictures. So I'd start just with some random configuration of the weights. Just throw in some random numbers. I don't want to think. I'll just put in random numbers. Then I, I give it a hundred pictures. And each one, and I know for each picture, I've decided this is a smiling picture, this is a frowning picture, so I know that. So I look at its answer, and then if uh, I'd say the answer should be should be 0.9, but it gave me an answer of zero, so that's an error of uh, you know it's off by 0.9. So I sum up the errors. So I give it the hundred numbers, I sum up the error term, and then what I do is I say, okay. The error is high, therefore something's wrong with the weights. So then I do what's called back-propagating. So particularly if, if this one is usually right, then I'll say the weights coming into here are okay. I'm not going to bother with this one. But if I'm getting a lot of false positives and false negatives on the smile, I'll say okay, these weights are bad. And then I'm going to say okay, what's coming, what's coming in here is bad. But then you also back-propagate. You say, not only is this weight bad, probably what's coming out of this neuron is bad as well. And So then you go back and look at these, and you push the error term back. And the way that's done is a little bit tricky and a little bit hard to explain. But the idea is you go back to the system and say, this guy's giving wrong answers. Sort of this Either there's something wrong with these weights or there's something wrong with the outputs of these neurons. And what you do is I'll say, well, let's assume it's a little of both. So I'll change these weights a little bit, and I'll go and change these outputs a little bit, kind of do both to make it better. Like this guy is giving a one when he should be giving a zero. And I say, well, there's something wrong with his weights. And then I look for each of the pictures, uh, what, what, value, what's, what it's weighting, and I say, well, you, you ought to be weighting it differently, okay? And so by doing this, I slowly train the net And what you can also do, you can do one picture at a time, get it to recognize correctly on one picture, then the next picture, then the next picture, and cycle through. Maybe if you train it for the 100th picture, maybe that's broken for the first picture. So you do it for a while. And surprisingly, it it does converge. And it converges pretty quickly. Converges you know, in maybe less than five minutes of machine time, often a lot faster than that. Maybe sometimes it just takes a few seconds. Now, once it's converged, it'll give the right answer for everything in the training sample. But then you want to test if you've really learned anything. So then you get a test sample. And these are other pictures. So then you give it some pictures that it's never seen before. And that's where you're saying, okay, have you really learned something or not? Because it's like. It might have learned to recognize these things by something that has nothing to do with smiling. It might just recognize which order it occurs in, or maybe there's just some little ding here, and it says, oh, the one with the ding in the corner is the guy that's smiling. So then you give it some other pictures and say, can it get it right? And if it does, then you know you've successfully trained it. OK? So that's, uh, that's sort of what we do with, with training neural nets to do things. Like the post office uses them uh, to recognize when you write your zip code on your on your letter, the post office has something that scans, the zip, scans your letter and actually is able to do recognizing writing, recognizing speech, recognizing human writing. These are both problems that are suitable for neural net training. Um, Another thing worth mentioning here is the architecture of the neural net. This is about as simple as a neural net architecture can be and still do something. You uh, have the the hidden layer with three neurons and the outputs. We could just do a a single output. We could have gotten rid of these and just look at a single output, just have it decide if you're smiling or not. It'd be about the simplest. But you can get more complicated neural nets. Uh, It turns out, uh, generally speaking, the nets you don't usually see like many, many hidden layers. Usually you'll see only one or two hidden layers. For, for some reason, uh, Wolfram would say it's because of the universality of computation. He has this idea that generally if you can write a program that will do something, there will also be a simple program that does it well. And this is sort of borne out in neural nets. You might think, well maybe if I made 15 hidden layers, you know, and made it real gnarly. Then maybe it would be smarter, but generally you, won't, you don't really gain anything. I mean, and we can already get we can already get class 4 cellular automata with you know the simplest kinds of rules we can think of, and it turns out we can get pattern recognition with, with rather simple neural nets. It's just a matter of training them. But uh, there are sometimes again this comes back to something I mentioned earlier today the, uh, the representation sometimes. It will be that if you design a neural net in a nice way, you'll get a nicer uh, a problem. Like if, for instance, so if I trained this guy simply on faces that were facing forward, uh, and then if I gave it a bunch of faces that were in profile, you know, it probably wouldn't do very well. Okay, So then you would say, well, how would I solve that problem? What you would really then want to have, and I mentioned this in the book, um, You'd want to have two two neural nets. You'd have one to decide whether the person is facing you facing left or facing right. So first solve that problem, then go and say, okay, now I know which way it's solving. Now I'll feed it to a neural net that's trained to recognize people that are smiling, you know, from the from the front or from profile. Actually, if you can recognize the left profile, you can recognize the right profile too. You just have to flip flip your connections around. Or to flip the flip the inputs around. Right. So, um, so there is an element of choosing the right representation. Okay, but uh, so that's the dream that uh, if we had enough, a nice big neural net architecture, and we trained it for a really long time, then maybe we could uh, we could get it to be. Able to solve all sorts of problems. One one notion would be: this is sort of a notion that Marvin Minsky popularized. He he wrote a book years ago called *The Society of Mind*, about 20 years ago, and he had the idea there that the brain is made of. It has a lot of agents in it. Like there's there's processes in your brain that recognize faces. There's things that recognize speech. There's things that Decide on actions, locations. The idea, maybe we could individually teach, use neural nets to produce the little agents to do all these separate things, and then somehow be hooking them together. So that's uh, that's something. Now, um, okay. Now. Is our brain, are we doing sort of back propagation in our brain? One theory is that, in other words, how is it that your brain actually learns things? I mean, do do your neurons have weights? Are they being tweaked as time goes by? And there's some indication that to some extent this is true. And the idea would be the following. If I have a synapse where there's sort of an input line and then there's a, a receptor on the neuron, what could happen? Um, maybe the idea is if it's good for, if there's this input, it's good for this guy to fire. Like maybe this is the thing that notices that a pin is sticky in your hand, then you'd want it to be real good at getting the muscle that moves to, to fire. So you'd want this to be really strongly connected. So one thing that can happen, and the brain actually does this, it can make. Uh, make these sort of bulbs, I think they call them bulbs, where the two ends of the, the they call these things dendrites, the the neuron sort of protrusions they call dendrites, make the bulbs bigger, okay? And then it's easier for the neuron to fire. So that that does happen. Uh, There's one sort of, a real simple notion of learning is the idea practice makes perfect. If you keep doing something over and over, like a lot of times, this is when we're trying to do something learn how to learn the times table. You keep reciting the times table. You're trying to play tennis. You keep trying to hit the ball in a good way. It is, if you can repeat an action often enough, the neurons get sort of grooved in. And so by, by stimulating this certain action over and over, these little synapse bulbs will get a little fatter and that, that will be built into your brain. So It's just sort of a physical notion of learning that way. Of course, a lot of things you learn are not nearly so simple. They they don't have the nature of simple reflexes. And then it's more like there's a more complicated layer of things. And it could be that the brain does something a little bit like back propagation. Like you think over, gee, I really messed up when I did such and such. And you're sort of simulating something in your mind and sort of scolding yourself for what you did wrong. you know. And just tennis, oh, I had my hand down. You keep a thing or don't, don't, don't twist your wrist down. And you're sort of doing a back propagation on your neural net. So again, um, as I said, when I was at MIT, I was at the MIT Press, and they have, where they print a lot of books. And there's a big department of brain and cognitive science there. And they had a whole wall of books on cognitive science. That's like a popular word for studying how the brain works. And, and somebody said, "Well, they can't all be right. You know there's like hundreds and hundreds of books about how the brain works, and we, we never. Well, I think we're making progress, but it's, it's certainly. It's not another, what I'm getting is, it's not certain that we do something like back propagation in our own brains, but it seems reasonable that there might be something like that. Okay, um, now, how does this relate to to Wolfram's classes? Is learning, like is your education, is it a class one, two, three, or four computation? Well, sometimes when you you sort of learn something and sort of you've got it, like again, arithmetic is always a good example. I learned that 7 plus 8 is 15. Then that's sort of, I sort of finish that. Then there's other kinds of learning that are more periodic. Um, What would be an example of that? Uh, It's. Maybe somewhat predictable if you keep seeing the same kinds of problems and solving them in the same kinds of ways. Uh, Maybe if, uh, since there's this, since people that aren't too sophisticated might imagine that there's, you know, some one golden rule you can learn and applies to every situation. I mean, people do try to make up golden rules, do unto others. As I would have them doing to you, or life is suffering. You know, various <laughs> golden rules we could have, and uh, so if you're in a situation where you can keep using the same rules uh, to get the good answers, that's a little bit of a class two situation. Um, most education, though, is more in the nature of class four. You're sort of exploring knowledge. You're you're on this journey into the unknown. You're sort of pursuing different paths. It's not, not clear where it's going to end up. Um, and again, I guess, class three, what, what kind of education would that be like? Well, you have completely bizarre inputs coming at you all the time. And you're, you're kind of floundering around trying to adjust to them. Um, OK. Now, we've talked a little bit about learning is kind of what I've been getting at. I'd like to talk about another way of thinking about what's going on in the brain. And this is the idea that um, a lot of what's going on in our brain is like, like you're sitting most, a lot of the time we aren't learning anything. We're just sitting around thinking, okay? You're you're resting, you're staring out the window. You're just, uh, meditating, pondering things. And uh, there's two two types of thought processes that it seems to me, I mean, on introspection, looking into what I find myself doing. And uh, both can be modeled as cellular automata, or at least I'm sort of prone to seeing things in terms of cellular automata. But the, um, the one would be trains of thought, and the other would be thought loops. Now, the CA that's a good example of trains of thought is, our, uh, is the rule that I've talked about before called Brian's brain. And I didn't bring the projector today. Do you remember what that rule looks like? Uh, I've showed it to you a few times. It has an interesting thing. It has another feature. The reason it's called Brian's Brain. The guy who made it up is called Brian Silverberg. Uh, And what he was, his inspiration here, or maybe he only thought of this after the fact. Maybe he first found the rule and then found the explanation. he, uh, he had the idea that there's something about the neuron that is sort of left out of this, this computer science neuron that we use in the neural net. And that's the fact that our actual brain neurons, after they fire, they, they have a little more state than this. Like, this thing doesn't have any internal state. It sort of does the same thing all the time. But uh, he says, well, what if we give the, the neuron a bit of state? So it can either be tired or not tired. And like right after, you know, you get tired of things. Like right, right after you've seen something, you know, you've seen a movie, you might not feel like seeing a movie immediately again. Your neurons are sort of tired out. And the idea, his idea was to say, well let's imagine that we have three states, zero, one, and two, and zero would be the ready state. N one would be the firing state, and two would be the resting state. And so, his idea for his rule is that if your cell, what what a, what a cell will do will depend on the value, the present value of the cell. I'll call that C. It also depend on the uh, firing sum. Now the firing sum is going to be how many of its neighbors are firing. Now by firing, I mean in state one. So you're firing, I'll call it the firing eight sum. So if you see, and I look at these eight cells around it in a grid, of these, it could be that none of them is firing. It could be that all eight of them is firing. Now his rule is the following. It says, if I'm in, State 0, if my firing state sum is exactly 2, then I'll go to the firing state. If I'm in state 1, and actually in this state I don't care what my firing state sum is, I'll always go to state 0. If I'm in state 2, I also don't care what my firing state sum is, I'll always go to state 0. So that's the Brian's brain rule, okay? So if you're in the ready state and you have two firing neighbors, you fire. Otherwise you don't, okay? And so I might say here, if I'm in state zero and it's not equal to two, then I go to state zero. So I stay in state zero. So I guess I should put that line in too. Now because of this, um, The rule lends itself to gliders. I feel like I've mentioned this before in here, but in case I haven't, let me just do it one more time. Uh, Suppose I have this is one, and this is one, and this is two, and this is two. Suppose I have a block with two ones, two firing cells on the right, and to the left I have two um, resting cells. What will happen at the next update is uh, these guys out here, They each will have two firing neighbors. So what I'll get, these guys will start firing. These guys that were in state one will go to the resting state two. These guys that were in state two will go to state zero. So if we have a block of a pair of ones, followed by a pair of firing cells, followed by a pair of resting cells, that will naturally propagate itself along. Because of that, uh, Brian's brain is full of stuff that's skewed Um, OK, now, when I watch it, it does seem to me it's a little bit reminds me of a little bit of thoughts rushing around in my head. I mean, a lot of your brain, when you sort of kind of watch your flow of thought, which is uh, people that do meditation often talk about trying to watch your thoughts. And something that happens when you try to watch your thoughts is you'll get attached to a thought. And then you'll sort of forget that you're trying to watch your thoughts. Because I'll say, you know, I'll be going along watching the flow of my thought. And then suddenly, there'll be something that worries me. And then I'll get into worrying about it. And that's a different process. That is more of a thought loop. So there's sort of the thought trains and the loops. The loop is when you worry about something, you think the same four or five things over and over. If like, uh, I suppose you're you're overdrawn at the bank. You're going on thinking. You think about money. You think about the bank. You think, what are they going to do to me? You know, are 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 they going to cancel my account? Where am I going to get money? I'm overdrawn. What are they going to do to me? Are they going <laughs> to cancel my account? And you, and you just sort of circle around these concerns. And usually, that's something. It's not necessarily the most pleasant thing to be doing. It's generally speaking, any thought loop. I guess if you can be in a thought loop, I'm happy. Boy, I'm happy. You know, if you could just be in that kind of a loop, that's nice. But uh, human nature is such that the, the things that we tend to get into loops about tend to be more. We spend I don't know at least half our waking life in these loops. Now. I bring this up again. I'm talking about a lot of what is in your mind is just natural, these sort of glider-like streams of thought. And I was saying it's a little bit hard to notice them. Well, it's not hard to notice them, but it's hard to watch them for very long, because what commonly happens is some thought comes along that triggers some thought loop, some concern. And then you, you kind of forget about watching your thoughts, and you go back to. To wanting something, or worrying about something, or regretting something, and then uh, you, you lose sight of the train. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, though. If you're trying to meditate, then you might say, "Well, then, gosh, I'm not good at." Me-. You'll 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 worry about something for a while, and then say, "Whoops, I was worrying." You say, "Gee, I'm not good at meditating," and then maybe you'll worry about that. Okay, so it's. Uh, but it, it's it's nothing really wrong about that we do this. It's just a phenomenon that happens. OK. So there's the glider-like flow of thoughts. The other thing, as I say, is the, the loops. And I think a really good example of a process that seems like that is our, our friends, the Jabotinsky scrolls. Because if you look at a CA that's running a scroll, you just see it kind of doing this, this spiral just is sort of endlessly turning here. This, sort of, this loop is kind of endlessly stimulating itself, just pulsing, pulsing, pulsing. One thing I got interested in was trying to write some CAs that would combine the gliders and the Jabotinsky scrolls. And so far, I didn't find any really great ones. I just did some sort of obvious tricks to have one triggering the other. And, uh, I think there might be some nice way to do that. Okay. But um, anyway, the point is here we're thinking in a more metaphorical way now here. We're not really talking and trying to make a neural net that can read or, or recognize faces. We're just saying what what does it feel like? Philosophers like to use the word phenomenology. That's a great philosophy word. Sounds so cool. I like that word, phenomenology. And that's think like it's the study of study of your Sensations—the study of what you what you what you perceive about the world—the study of how things look to you—and so I'm sort of talking here about the phenomenology of the mind. This is a famous book with that title, *The Phenomenology of the Mind*, and we're saying, what is what is it like in, in my head? What am I seeing in there? And I'm pointing out that the, the two Two kinds of things that I see is the uh, thought loops and the trains of thought, and that in itself is, is, in a way, it's obvious. But then, if I start modeling them as cellular automata, it somehow seems a little more to have a little more content. I'm saying it's a little bit like seeing CA gliders and a little bit like seeing scrolls. Here again, we could say, well, is, is what's going on in my brain class 2, class 3, class 4? And usually, class 1, again, means coming to a conclusion and being done. And then, as long as you're alive, that never really happens. You come to conclusions about certain limited problems, but your overall, your brain keeps going. So then the question is, is it class 2, class 3, or class And when you're in, uh, this would be, earlier today, I was discussing the test, and I was asking for examples of different styles of thought that are similar to class two, class three, class four. And uh, something I, I should have mentioned earlier, but I didn't think of it, a good example of a class two thought process is when I keep worrying about something, like if one of your loved ones is sick, you just keep thinking about them, you know, are they okay? You know, should I call the doctor? Are they okay? You, know, and you just go around and around, and you don't get anywhere. And that's that's one of the modes that we think in. And again, I wouldn't say, it's, again, we can just be phenomenologists here. We don't have to say that's bad. You shouldn't think like that. That's just one of the things that your mind does. You get into loops, and those have a class two quality. Um the class four quality that's again that's more the uh, gliders the, the trains of thought moving along one thing leading to another as I mentioned earlier it's not so clear to me that I mean do I ever do I get into class three uh, maybe it's well these concepts aren't really that well defined the difference between class 3 and class 4. You may have noticed that by now. Uh, class 3 is more messy and would there be I don't know what do you guys think? Can you think of modes of thought where that would be more class 3 or class 4? Can you think of any examples that would would be relevant there? Let's say a minute. If you say for a year, oh, okay. For a minute. Yeah. Uh, okay, you're saying, yeah. How long a period? Suppose, like, if I'm looking into my head for a minute, under what situations would I say, gee, I was just having class three thoughts. I know what class two is. That's, I'm going to spend a minute worrying about worrying about my, my the warning light on my car engine and what I'm going to do about that. Okay. I know how class two feels. But class three and class four, what, what how would that feel different? Well it's it's very hard to to, to to like even define what a random human thought would be because because uh arguably they nothing random that think. Well, yeah, I mean all of these things are deterministic computations, so none of them is truly random. No, not even Well, even, so, I mean, I'm in sensory deprivation. I'm lying on my bed with my eyes closed. Nothing's happening. Now, if I'm, like if I'm planning the plot of a story that I'm writing, that feels like class four. Now, it's it's not predictable, because if it was, I wouldn't have to lie there doing it. I would just know how to do it. I'm sort of working something out, kind of growing something. So that's more like class four. Now, class three, would would that just simply be like, it could just be letting the thoughts bubble up. I mean, in a way, like rule 30, it's just this sort of fizzing. Uh, Perhaps if you, if you receive a blow to the head? Well, I, I don't want to get so drastic. I'm just lying in bed. I think almost if we accept the hope, Mm-hmm. Stuff just started firing off. And then, uh, well, yeah, I'm just, a, I think there would be degrees though. We could say sometimes the way I'm thinking, a lot of times, like maybe I have some purpose. If I'm thinking in a more purposeful fashion, maybe that's more likely to be class four. I don't know. Or perhaps something more like pre association. Yeah, maybe if you're deliberately letting, you know, like you're dropping off to sleep and things are just popping into your head and you have no no reason, that would be more like class three. I feel like, for me, I get kind of clashed with three thoughts when I'm trying to think about something. I only have to think about one because one thing, mm-hmm. my mind will immediately try to think about everything, but mm-hmm. it's like, impact. I don't know gotta think about this, I think about this. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That's an interesting point. Yeah, if you try to, if there's one thing you're trying hard to think about, and yeah, our minds don't like to be told what to do, so right away a lot of other things will boil in. So it's a, like inspiration when you're trying to create something and you get unexpected ideas. I mean, those are a little bit kind of like class three things boiling up at you. It's not so much that you're, it's no, sometimes we have the idea that we have logic and we have inspiration. Or, you know, There's the, the rational mind and the, the sort of more creative mind. Um, so maybe you might say when, when you move, thinking a little more logically and rationally, maybe that's more like class four. And when you're opening yourself to inspiration from the muse, that could be a little more like class three. Let's see. Maybe I've lectured long enough today. You'll understand you look sort of exhausted. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's, uh, let's knock off here at the end of section 4.3. And next time, we'll start up with section 4.4. Four. But oh. I'll make you sticker. I'm going to turn the the tape off.